they all seem to wrap up the same way. That, you know, there's this uh, adversity that they overcome and then true love wins. And then you get that last line, and they lived happily ever after the end. Sometimes when you're reading uh, a story, you're reading a book, you're watching a movie, you're watching a television show, and then you get to the ending and you say, oh man, I just want one more page. You know, just, just give me one more scene, just one more episode. I don't want it to be over yet. Because, you know, you've, you've been with a character for so long and you've kind of walked in their shoes for a little bit. And then just as they conquer all their adversity, you, you just don't get to watch them just live out their dreams. And in some ways, that's what happens in the book of Ruth. You know, when I read um, stories sometimes to my son Pierce, he's four, and when I read him a book at the end of the night, you know, we'll, I'll finish the book, and then he'll say, no, 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 Daddy, you know, and he'll turn back the pages because he doesn't want the story to end and probably because he didn't want to go to bed. But we've all been there. We've all been there. We've all had that show, that book, that movie that we just want a little bit more. And Ruth is definitely that way. We've walked in her sandals for a while. We've seen the twists and turns, the ups and downs and the ups again. And we, we just want to see, okay, now that Boaz has won his bride, what's their marriage going to look like? What, what adversity is going to come next? How are they going to conquer? How are they just going to live life together? We want to watch them live out their dreams. And yet this book is a tiny little book. It's only four chapters long. It's in the middle of much longer historical narratives, most of which are over five times as long. And yet this story, this story of love and redemption, it has the ability to just capture our hearts and dazzle our imaginations in a way that few other books do. But let's go ahead and wrap up this series this morning. We're going to look at the final scene. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. And just before we get to this happily ever after, uh, I want to take a moment just to kind of remember the scenes of this real life fairy tale, just to kind of remember again where we've been and what's taken place. And you remember that once upon a time in the dark days of the judges, that there was a famine in the land and there was this leading family in Bethlehem of this small Ephrathite clan. And they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab, the wash pot. And then they're in Moab and and you remember what happens. The husband, Elimelech, he dies. The two boys, they get married and then they die, Malon and Kilion. And so we're left after 10 years with three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And so they head out from Moab and they go a distance on their way to Bethlehem and then they hit that crossroads. And at that crossroads, Naomi tells the younger ladies that, hey, go back to Moab. Maybe you can find a good Moabite man there and he'll be your husband. You need to go back there. And Orpah does. But Ruth, she makes that iconic statement. She says, no, I'm never leaving you. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Nothing but except death will separate me from you. And so he goes back to Bethlehem with this bitter widow. And then there, when they're greeted by the women of Bethlehem, Naomi doesn't even acknowledge Ruth's presence. She says, I'm empty. 
the women, they're hungry. They're there in Bethlehem. They're hungry. They have nothing. And so Ruth asks Naomi, hey, can I just go out in the, in the field and maybe pick up some grain that's, that's fallen in the fields? And Naomi gives her her blessing, and she goes out, and Ruth ends up gleaning in the fields of grace. She had just so happened that she was in the field of Boaz. And then boy meets girl. You remember Boaz, he noticed her first. He saw her gleaning in the fields and he wanted to know just who is that woman. And he goes over and he protects her and he looks after her and he allows her to drink from the water uh, that only his employees could drink from. And he talks to his employees about her in order to protect her and instruct them on how they should treat her. And we have this scene, you, you know, he's inviting her to meals, and you can just feel it. Love is in the air. But then uh, the, the harvest season is over, and you wonder, okay, what's going to happen with Ruth and Boaz? And with Naomi's encouragement, Ruth goes to Boaz, and as was the custom of the day, she proposed to him. Just as the clock struck midnight, she proposed to him, and they whispered their love for one another, and Boaz wanted nothing more than to marry Ruth. But there was a closer relative, there was a nearer redeemer who stood in the way. And so Boaz said, you know, I've got to talk to him first because the plot thickened. And so he went as soon as he could the next morning, and he went to the city gates where official business was conducted. And we saw how, how Boaz, it just so happened that this near relative he approached, but he declined the opportunity to marry Ruth. And so it takes this last turn where Boaz has won his bride. And this is where we're at. This is where we're at. Boaz has won his bride. And now we want to read more. Okay, what does life look like now? So let's go ahead. We'll look. There's not a whole lot to say, but let's look. Rome, Ruth chapter 4, 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. When we entered... The story, and he condensed it. Narrator, you remember, he condensed the first 10 years of this family in Bethlehem. He condensed it down to just five verses. And now it's hard to miss just how quickly the narrator is wrapping things up for us. In just two sentences, you've got a wedding, a honeymoon, conception. You've got nine months of anticipation. You've got a son who is born. But, but if we slow down and just kind of climb back into the story a little bit, if we consider the historical circumstances of what likely took place between this, this marriage, this wedding between Boaz and Ruth, 
we discover it's probably a pretty elaborate affair. The, the entire village probably showed up to take part in all the festivities. Boaz and Ruth, they would have been dressed like royalty because Boaz was a wealthy groom. And so as a man of wealth and prosperity, he, he likely put on quite an event. And he, he would have been dressed, he would have had a, a gold crown. The grooms of that day, wealthy grooms, they wore gold crowns and they had their, uh, the robes that they wear, they were scented with frankincense and myrrh. Centuries later, there would be another redeemer who had come, a descendant of Boaz. And as a little boy, a toddler, he would be presented with gifts befitting a man who was ready to redeem his bride. The marriage that was consummated and, and then just a few brief words later, the narrator tells us that, that Ruth has given birth to a son. If you remember back in, in Moab, her marriage with Malon, Ruth's marriage to Malon, it was characterized by infertility. There was no heir. There was no son. There was no daughter. And here it is, the legal heir. There is a birth of a son. Boaz had prayed back in chapter 2 that, that perhaps uh, God would show favor on Ruth and that he would richly reward her for her devotion to Naomi. And then Ruth, as she proposed to Boaz, she reminded him of that prayer and said, hey, would you be the answer to your own prayer? And now as Boaz answered that prayer, and, and here it is, as God has dramatically answered that prayer because here is the fulfillment of it all. She's loved, she's protected, she has a husband, and now she has a son. There is a family heir. For Boaz and Ruth, this is their happily ever after. They are not mentioned again in this book by name. I mean, except for Boaz briefly in the genealogy section, but not a part of the story. Maybe you're here this morning and and you wish that your happily ever after kind of looked like Ruth and Boaz a little bit, that it could just unfold the same way. You could get married, have a happy marriage, a, a son, and then, you know, you just kind of ride off into the sunset a little bit, just living and enjoying life. I mean, we, we don't know what happens next for Ruth and Boaz, but you get this hint that God has protected them, that he has blessed them, that he has shown favor on them, and this is their happily ever after. I think it's important for us to just to take a moment to consider our happily ever after. What does that look like? in the life of a Christian. See, anybody who knows that toddler who received gold and frankincense and myrrh when he was just a boy, if you know him and how he grew up to wear a crown of thorns, dying for the sin of the world and rising again to defeat sin and death, if you know Jesus, then the Bible speaks of what your happily ever after will consist of. And sometimes when you feel like you're kind of wandering around the wash pot the way that Naomi had been for a while, and when you, when you look at your life and all you see are your rags and never your riches, well, here this morning, sometimes it's important to consider what your inheritance consists of. Consider your inheritance. Be reminded of your happily ever after what that will be like. So I want to take a moment this morning and just kind of remind ourselves of that. And so I'm going to go to First Peter, and in First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Peter, he's writing primarily to Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians who are being persecuted. They're living as aliens uh, in the Mediterranean. They're, they're, they're undergoing the persecution of Nero, and it's, it's bad, but it's going to get even worse. Um, they've been forced to scatter from Jerusalem. 
And if you're going through struggles, if, if you feel like you've got life's difficulties, if, if you feel like you've been scattered out in any way and just trying to put the pieces together, the church that Peter was writing to could definitely relate. And Peter said to this group of people, he says that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you have been born again, and then in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Just check out those uh, adjectives for a moment. Just, just kind of consider what it is that Peter is saying, the quality of our inheritance. He says first that it's imperishable, that it will never be spoiled. You know, we go to the store all the time, the grocery store, and all we buy are perishables. I mean, even the things that they say are imperishable have a, have a date on them, right? I mean, salt, rice, everything, it's at least 30 years, but, you know, you've still got. After that, you know, it's kind of, you know, wishy-washy. You got freeze-dried survivalist food. Even that, it's got a, it's got a date on it. Uh, everything has a date. Everything will eventually spoil. It will eventually be of no use. But God says, hey, that our inheritance will never spoil. That there will never be a day when it's of no use. Our inheritance has this quality of immortality. It is everlasting, imperishable. And beyond that, he says it's undefiled. It's unstained. It's untainted by evil. Our inheritance is completely flawless. It's not just flawless to the naked eye where it's 99.999. No, no, it's 100% pure. And it will always remain perfect. And Peter says even beyond that, that our inheritance is unfading. It is unfading. The, The word was often used by classical Greek authors to speak of the beauty of flowers. That, that it, it has this beauty, that, that our inheritance will continually and constantly and forever display the glory and splendor of our God, that it will take your breath away, that there will be no decaying effects of the world will ever uh, taint our inheritance in any way. It is a beautiful inheritance kept in heaven for us. No petals will ever fall off. Its brilliance will never start start to lose its color. Our inheritance will reflect the glory and the splendor of God forever. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. This is the quality of our inheritance, the inheritance that we possess if we know Jesus. And as we dream about heaven and our inheritance, you know, this is just talking about the quality of it, but it, it fails to mention what it actually consists of, what, what that will be like, what we actually obtain. And so to, just to talk about that, I'm going to run around to several different passages throughout the New Testament. You can try to follow me if you want, or just jot them down, or just listen up. But first, Paul writes in Romans 8:17 that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, and this means that we will receive by our joint inheritance with Christ everything that the Son of God receives. Everything that God gives to the Son, all the blessings, all the grandeur, all the splendor, everything that God gives the Son, He gives to us. This is a wonderful truth, and it's far different than any other society has ever thought about inheritance. You go back to the Romans, and in the Roman family, the adopted son was given all of the inheritance. He was given all the family fortune. If there was an adopted son in a Roman family, he got it all. Okay, The, the Roman father, if he chose, so cho- chose, he could divide it up if he wanted, but it was rare. Typically, the adopted son got everything. 
In the Jewish family, it, it worked different. The, the inheritance was divided up between the sons, and there was one more share um, than sons in the family. And the oldest son would get a double portion. And this is how the inheritance worked in the Jewish family. And in our, in our culture, you know how it works for the most part. It's just divided evenly between all the children. But see, all these ideas, they miss what is expressed in this verse. The idea here, the idea of the inheritance that we receive from God is that through the power and the lavish grace that God will just bestow on us, that every believer gets it all. That it's not, hey, you get half an acre and you get an acre and you get two acres. No, no, no. God gives to every believer all of it, all of heaven is yours. All the inheritance that God gives the Son, he gives to us. All of heaven belongs to us. In this verse, it also says that we are heirs of God. The Greek expression heirs of God can be understood two ways, and I hate to do this, but I got to take you through a little grammatical lesson this morning. So if you like English grammar, this is great, but if you don't, just try to hang with me, okay? So it can be understood two ways, either objectively or subjectively. Um, And to be an heir of God, if if you understand um, an heir of God subjectively, then the point is that um, we are heirs of God, and that, that is that God is the subject, and we inherit everything that God owns. Everything that God owns, we inherit And he owns a lot, right? And then to understand it objectively, we are heirs of God. That places God as the object, which means that we inherit God himself, that our inheritance is God. So you can either understand it subjectively, everything God owns, or objectively, God himself. And the truth is both interpretations are substantiated in Scripture, We do. We inherit everything God possesses, and at the same time, we inherit God himself. It's all part of our happily ever after. You see the example of a subjective side of inheritance in the book of Ruth when Boaz transfers the benefits of being a part of this family to Ruth, that she now enjoys the wealth of the family because she is married to Boaz. And as a result, Ruth, she doesn't know no longer will she ever have to go gleaning in the fields anymore. I mean, she's, she didn't have to do that because she's a part of the family. She's no longer a guest at the table. It's her table. Instead, now she owns the fields. She owns the produce. She owns it. She is part of the family. And the value of an inheritance is determined by the one who's giving the inheritance, right? However wealthy it was of the person who owned it, that's the value of the inheritance. Some of us might look at it, well, hey, you know, for Ruth, that was a pretty good deal because Boaz was a wealthy guy. You know, he owned a lot. But some of you may say, hey, you know, my heirs, they're going to get, you know, a mortgage and a stack of bills. I don't know. But consider this. God owns, he, he owes nothing. God owes nothing and he possesses everything and he gives everything away to his children. He owes nothing, he possesses everything, and he gives it all away. This is the Christian's inheritance, that it comes from God, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, the owner of everything, and he gives it all away. This is the subjective side of this inheritance. But there is the objective side as well. 
that God is not only the source of our inheritance, he is also the supplier, the object of our inheritance. Um, John wrote in Revelation that God will be among men. David wrote in Psalms that whom have I in heaven but you and beside you I desire nothing on earth. He also wrote in your presence is the fullness of joy in your right hand are pleasures forever. We not only inherit everything that belongs to God but we inherit God himself. There will never be a time that we are without the presence of God enjoying the relationship with God perfectly forever. Those of us who are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ There's more we inherit. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it teaches us that we inherit the throne and rule of Christ, that we will reign with Christ. And so what what does that mean to reign with Christ? Well, we're not given a a full explanation in Scripture of exactly what that's going to look like, but it is an amazing thought, isn't it? Just to think about for a moment that the believer will actually be given the right and the ability and the responsibility to be a judge at the end of the world. It's an amazing thought, and it's exactly what the Bible teaches. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent? to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? See, we're not told exactly how this is going to work, but we are told that we will be involved with Christ, seated on thrones as judges, implied in Revelation 20, that we will be judging the unbelieving world and pronouncing judgment on the demonic world. That with Christ, we will judge the world. We will judge the angelic world, both demonic and holy. I mean, can you imagine that, that righteous day just for a moment? Can you imagine that awesome responsibility, that high calling to support, to defend and extend the righteous judgment of God upon all humanity who refuse to acknowledge their creator, God, along with Christ? So you are the heir of God. You will speak for the justice and the holiness of God. This is part of what we inherit. We inherit the throne of rule and responsibility alongside Christ. And as an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, not only do we inherit all that God has, God himself, the throne of rule and responsibility, but we also inherit a transformed earth. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 22, That as heirs of God, we inherit a new heaven and a new earth. You see it in Revelation 21. That we will inherit this paradise. Earth as God first created it for Adam and Eve, only now somehow even better. The beauty of God's creation will be ours to discover and to explore and to enjoy forever perfectly. And Jesus, he gave his followers this amazing promise And we looked at it in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 5, when he promised that they would inherit the earth. See, we don't get to just get heaven. We get earth as well. C.S. Lewis wrote, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither heaven or earth. I don't know how much real estate that you own now, but it's nowhere near what it will be someday. Sometimes we work so hard just to get that acre or that half acre or whatever it is, work so hard just to get this little bit of land. And God says, I have in mind to give you all of it. That one day I will give you the title deed to the whole planet. 
that it will all be yours. We as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we possess an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that God keeps in heaven for us. It consists of everything God owns, God himself, the throne of rule and responsibility alongside Christ, and a transformed earth. And we possess it perfectly forever. See, this is our happily ever after. And sometimes we've got to remind ourselves of what God has in mind to do for each of us, what our inheritance is, and how he desires and will one day bless us and make everything perfectly. You know, in the book of Ruth, after we read a quick synopsis of the, the joy that Boaz and Ruth experience with a son, the, or, or marriage really, the story shifts back to where it began. The focus returns to Naomi. We want to hear more about Ruth and Boaz. We want to hear more about their marriage and what it's going to look like and what's going to happen next. But the narrator, by shifting back to Naomi, he's, he's kind of just putting it out there that the purpose of this book is not simply the redemption of Ruth and Naomi, but the redemption is something bigger than that. See, when, when Naomi re-entered Bethlehem, you remember she comes back a bitter woman. She's lost her husband. She's lost her boy. She says, I left here full. I've come back empty. And the women of the town are there to greet her when she returned, but, you know, she couldn't even stand the sound of her own name. She says, oh, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She wished she could live a different life. And now as the story concludes and a son is born, the women of the town are present again. And you can see this incredible reversal that's taken place because now the women of the town, they're reminding her and they're pointing, they're pointing to Ruth and they're saying that this woman, Ruth, she's more valuable to you than seven sons. Look at what her devotion has done. Look, look what it has uh, resulted in. That now there is this son, there is Obed, and he will help redeem you. See, this once empty widow, she's now this invigorated grandmother. The, the women of the town, they're, they're so excited for their friend that they, they take this unprecedented almost kind of step, and they name the boy. Okay, this is un completely unusual, all right? It would be unusual today. I mean, if someone just showed up and said, hey, you're pregnant. I'd like to name your child for you. You know, we'd look at them like they had three heads. But it was, it was weird back then, too. It wasn't typical. People just didn't go around and, and you know, the women of the town, hey, we're going to name your son. In fact, the custom of the day would have been for the boy to be named Elimelech. But the, the women, they get so excited that they named the son, and Ruth and Boaz, they go along with it. Hey, that's a pretty good name. We'll stick with Obed. Obed means servant. And from uh, this line, this lineage, this family line, would emerge the suffering servant. And as the redemption of Naomi took place, we're told that she would be an important influence in Obed's life, that she would be his nurse, that she would be caring for him. Perhaps she would be the one at night just whispering those Bible stories uh, and, and, and how God had protected her people. 
And maybe as she was just recounting God's protection and faithfulness to the Israelites, perhaps just maybe that Ruth was listening in and just hearing about her adopted people and what God had done for them as she heard the history of the Israelites recounted. What a, what a wonderful asset that Naomi could have been to Ruth and Boaz. What, what a compliment she could have been to reinforce the same truths that Ruth and, and Boaz were, were teaching in the home. This is what a faithful grandparent can be. One who comes alongside and just reinforces what godly parents are trying to do. This is the influence that a godly grandparent can have. And we think of Naomi and how she arrived and she's bitter and she gets back to Bethlehem empty and she says, I've got nothing. And now she's full. It, it just demonstrates that our God is able to turn pain to praise. That our God is able to turn pain to praise. He did it for Naomi. He can do it for you. I don't, know, I don't know all the circumstances in your life, but if you're hurting, if you're suffering, if you're going through any kind of difficulty, that our God is big enough, he is able to take that pain, he's able to turn it to praise. He's able to make all things good. He's able to give us a reason to sing. He did it for Naomi, he can do it for you. He can turn pain to praise. The book ends with a genealogy. And in this genealogy, we're just kind of struck by the fact that because of the obedience of this Moabite widow from the line of Boaz will come King David. That, that, that Ruth would be the great-grandmother to King David. And that perhaps, even as the great-grandmother, that perhaps she lived long enough to even see him born. We don't know. But remember this story, it took place during the selfish, evil days of the judges. But as a result of the faithfulness of this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, the redemption would extend beyond simply Ruth and Naomi. There was another kinsman redeemer to be born to this small Ephrathite clan in Bethlehem, and his name was David. David would be the king who would lead the Israelite people back to the one true God. This, this redemption that took place in this mixed race couple, this family, it would now lead to the redemption of a nation. And yet the story doesn't even end there because the genealogy found in the book of Matthew tells us that another kinsman redeemer would be born to this small clan, Jesus Christ. And if you've ever noticed in the Old Testament, you've got all these genealogies, right? You've got hard name after hard name after hard name. You're trying to get through it. Even in this small one, in Ruth, there's a few difficult names, but there's a lot of genealogies in the Old Testament. By the time you get to the New Testament, you've got two genealogies. You've got one in Matthew's gospel and one in Luke's gospel. And both those genealogies end with Jesus. You never get a genealogy after Jesus because Jesus is the perfect kinsman redeemer, the only one who is able to actually fully and finally secure the redemption of all humanity. And he's from that little tiny family in Bethlehem, that Ephrathite family. And so now just as Ruth and Boaz could be redeemed and Naomi could be redeemed and, and then the Israelite people through the kinsman redeemer that David was. Now all of humanity is offered redemption through Jesus Christ. And as we read most fairy tales, they had that ending and they lived happily ever after 
the end. However, when we're redeemed by Jesus, our story ends a little differently. When we join the sinners who've been redeemed and we take our place beside the Savior, when we come to the table, the final page of our story doesn't end happily ever after the end. No, no, no. Instead, it says, and they lived happily ever after forever. That the joy of our inheritance, as incomparable as it is, will never fade that there will never be a day and it just goes away or it ceases to exist. Our happily ever after is forever. Those of us who have been redeemed by Jesus, our story ends with happily ever after forever. And that's what happens when a fairy tale comes true. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and righteous and generous God that you would do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that through your perfect life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, that we can have a happily ever after that never ends, that never fades, and that you keep that in heaven secure for us. God, thank you. Thank you for that. And help us, help us to remember the the quality of our inheritance, what our inheritance is, especially when times are difficult, that there's a God in heaven who loves us, who sent his son to die for us, and who, who has gone ahead to prepare that place for us. And God, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever sadness we may be going through right now, that you're able to turn that pain to praise, just like you did for Naomi. So God, help us to live that out. Help us to live the reality of that in our own lives. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Well, as we close out our series this morning, what happens when a fairy tale comes true, we're going to watch a little video, and I'll just invite you if, you, if, if, if you'd like to pray some more, you can come down front and, and pray here, but right now, I'll just go ahead and let's watch this video together. No one unwelcome here. And 
Hey 